that's, that's a dead heat, statistically. 38% uh, of Americans not only oppose sending more troops, they say the U.S. should begin to withdraw troops, according to a Gallup poll taken in early October, their latest. Um, I'd ask uh, Colonel Monser, the, uh, the country's obviously divided here. If I were to say to you, you know, it might be difficult for all of us to understand why we have a security interest in Afghanistan at all. Since 38% of Americans say we should start bringing the troops home, we should start withdrawing. What is the security interest? What's our interest here in having troops stay and even maybe in increasing them? Well, we've been down this road before. We supported uh, the various Afghan factions in the war against the Soviet Union back in the 1980s, and then when, once they had forced the Soviet Union out, we decided that the area was of no consequence to us, and therefore we didn't need to continue our, our support of any faction there and uh, let the, the, the chips fall where they may, and that led right to 9-11 eventually. Uh, so to stabilize that region, I think, is in the, American, in the interest of the United States. But furthermore, beyond uh, our national security, is you have to look at the consequences of a withdrawal and the second and third order effects. And I think the second order effect, besides the destabilization of Afghanistan, is the potential destabilization of Pakistan. And if you think that Afghanistan has nothing worthwhile in terms of national interest, Pakistan certainly does with 172 million people. Uh, a, a, country on the border of what will be a major strategic ally in the 21st century in India and possessing 100 nuclear weapons. And a third order consequence is the uh, amplification of the jihadist narrative that they have not only defeated one superpower in the Hindu Kush, the Soviet Union in the 1980s, but two. Uh, and that if people just flock to the banner of jihad that, uh, that they can uh, continue the war with the West. And I think that will have um, a certain number of takers in, in the wider Islamic world, and that's something I, I don't think we need. To, we don't need to hand them that victory. That, the counterargument I've heard is, you know, Al Qaeda and associated terrorists. The counterargument goes can plot anywhere. They can plot in an apartment in Hamburg, Germany, as they did to, for 9/11. They can plot in another failed state like Somalia. Why do we have to risk that this argument goes American lives? when Al-Qaeda and associated terrorists can really plot anywhere around the globe. Why not withdraw? There are a few other areas of the world that have the advantages that the Afghanistan-Pakistan region have with its remoteness, the difficulty in projecting forward military power into the region. Uh, it is very, very difficult for uh, Al-Qaeda to say use Somalia as a base in that regard. In fact, we were able uh, to kill the Al-Qaeda leader in Somalia with a predator drone strike uh, the other week uh, because we were able to launch those drones from our ships offshore. Uh, you can't do that in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and so th that region has uh, has special interest to Al-Qaeda and for a good reason. And Professor Mueller, 38% of Americans in the Gallup poll say uh, we should begin withdrawing troops. Uh, would you agree or disagree with that? Thank you.
memory of the last 10 years, uh, consists of maybe 100 people, so the people running around in, uh, in uh, Pakistan. Let me ask you, Professor Mueller, about another argument, which is that if the Taliban is allowed to take over in Afghanistan, which if we withdrew, they, they well might, they could combine with Taliban and other elements in Pakistan who are already warring against the Pakistani government. Uh, they could potentially overthrow a Pakistani government, and Pakistan has nuclear weapons. Yeah, the Taliban in Pakistan consists of a few million people in a small area, I guess, country which is dedicated to being devoted, I guess, to 160 million. Over the country, it's, 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 it's
Study Center. Of course, you were born and raised in Afghanistan. You were, uh, no, we'll have audience questions. No, no, we will have audience questions. I should have mentioned this. We'll have audience questions after we're finished speaking. Oh, thank you. All right. Did, did everybody hear Professor Mueller? Thank you. Did everybody hear what Professor Mueller had to say? Raise your hand if you didn't hear. Okay. Well, thank you for pointing that out. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, Dr. Payan, director of the Middle East Studies Center, born and raised in Afghanistan. You help government and academic positions in Kabul, and you've heard two different points of view here uh, as a native Afghan. But where do you stand on American involvement in Afghanistan? Well, uh, what happened in Afghanistan was the results of the Soviet invasion. Still can't hear. on some of the mics here. <laughs> Test one, two. We'll use uh, Colonel Lancer's mic. Thank you very much. Yeah, the instability in Afghanistan is the results of many events and many things. Uh, the most important one to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 and the tenure of Soviet occupation and after that Withdrawal of the Soviet troops in 1989. Then, to this day, Afghanistan is in war. Uh, some people may not like it, but it is viewed inside Afghanistan also as an occupation right now. Uh, even though Americans, at least some of us, do not like it to be called an occupation. But, but the most important thing is that Taliban are not a monolithic group right now. There are Pakistani Taliban and Afghan Taliban. And the Afghan Taliban could be divided again into two groups. The ones who are very dedicated Al-Qaeda supporters. There are a very small number of them. The rest of them are just the ones that have lost the government in Afghanistan and they were driven out of Afghanistan. Their agenda is very local. It is Afghanistan. They don't have an international agenda. But on the other hand, the ones who are with Al-Qaeda, they have exactly the same agenda as Al-Qaeda does, which is the Arab-Israeli issue is a very important one for them. It is the United States and the international imperialism and that sort of thing. It's a combination of what the, the communists used to say about the Catholic societies. And now it is with the, with the religious zeal. It's a combination of, it's a politicization of religion and religionization of politics. Both is working, especially in Pakistan and in Afghanistan. Now the Pakistani Taliban, again, could be divided into two groups. One is, again, uh, a dedicated Al-Qaeda supporters, which is, again, a small number. The rest of them are Pashtuns and Pashtuns northwest frontier do not want the Punjabi domination and this has been going on for literally for, for decades. So their agenda is also a local one. So the Taliban do not have this big huge it's Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is the threat and that's what the Obama government is has mentioned from the beginning. Let me, let me say General Jones, the National Security Advisor, President Obama said there are only about a hundred Al-Qaeda right now in Afghanistan. And you say there are Taliban, of course, who are in, in sympathy or in league with Al-Qaeda. How many Taliban would you put in that category? It's a very small. No one really knows about the statistics. But the Al-Qaeda, first of all, Afghans are not very really fond of the Arabs, especially the Arab Wahhabis who came to Afghanistan. That's one thing that most of us have been missing. Uh, 
the situation which happened in Afghanistan was not right now that what is happening. I just returned from Kandahar. I was there two weeks ago. Uh, when you talk to the Taliban, listen to their 150-some FM pirate radios, mostly in the Balochistan and the Northwest Frontier area, uh, they have a slick propaganda. You will not hear anything about support for Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda rhetoric. It is mostly local. It is the corruption of the government that they are mentioning. It is, they are saying that Afghanistan is under occupation. The current election was just a fraud from the beginning. Uh, judges are corrupt. Uh, and uh, that is the rhetoric that you hear from very little uh, when you listen to those. Uh, let me give you another side of the story. Can, can, can I ask you, given all these, these complex factors, Dr. Payan, what, what do you think is the best course for the United States to give General McChrystal the additional troops he's asked for uh, to begin a phased withdrawal? I mean, where would you stand? General Crystal, in his report, to Secretary Gates, the Secretary of Defense. In the summary of that, he mentioned that no matter how many troops we put in Afghanistan, that's not going to solve the problem. So the problem of Afghanistan is much deeper than only that the military can solve. If military would have solved the problem in Afghanistan, the Soviets would have succeeded. I mean, that's one thing. Uh, if the military solution would have been one of the, the, the solutions for the Vietnam, the Americans have, would have won the war of Vietnam. So that's what General McChrystal and many other it's a, uh, American foreign diplomats and foreign military officers have come to the conclusion that in Afghanistan its military has to be a one with the pressure has to be put on the Taliban and Al-Qaeda simultaneously that has to be developed in Afghanistan there has to be uh, reduction of the corruption uh, the Afghan government should be a credible government it has to be accountable to the people of Afghanistan uh, the money that which has gone from the United States to Afghanistan it is really in, in, in terms of billions uh, I, I met an American uh, just about three weeks ago at Kabul University, and he was telling me that well, $27 billion have gone to Afghanistan from the United States. I do not know whether his figures were correct or not. I, I'm just quoting him. And that we are going to investigate what happened to those money. And he just told me that, well, we do not know uh, uh, that, that in different uh, areas that money is, has been missing in Afghanistan, just like it was missing in, in, in can I ask you, Dr. Payne, is this enterprise then worth American lives? And why, if it is? As an American, I would say no. Uh, well, in the, month of, uh, in the month of July, 44 Americans were killed in Afghanistan. In August, 77 Americans. In the month of October, is the largest ever since uh, October the 7th, 2001, when American troops were introduced. That went to Afghanistan. So this kind of casualty level, and I don't think that it is sustainable in the long run. Uh, American public opinion, the open, at the beginning, when uh, after September the 11th, right after the September, in the aftermath of this, uh, September the 11th, uh, the public opinion in the United States, in the Western European, were in support of sending troops there. But now it is, uh, I do not know if you have heard just uh, Gordon Brown, the, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, when six of their soldiers were killed by one of the police officers in Afghanistan, and he said, we are not going to spend the money and send our kids to shed their blood in a country where the government is corrupt and is not, so the Afghanistan government is synonymous with corruption. That's what he so should we begin withdrawing our troops if it's not worth American lives? 
No, I, I think that's also not a, 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 a good policy that it, it should be like, what happens? It happened. We have been on the same. In Afghanistan, when Afghanistan was abandoned after the Soviet withdrawal uh, from February the 15th uh, of 1989 up to September the 11th, 2001, uh, that Afghanistan was neglected and ignored and we saw what happened. I would argue that Iraq is not dangerous in terms of Al-Qaeda returning back to Iraq, but Afghanistan is dangerous because in Iraq the statistics show that 60% of Iraqis are Shiites, that Imami Shiites the same as the Iranians are, about 17 to 18% are Kurdish, combined 60% and 17% they do not like Al-Qaeda. So Al-Qaeda coming as, an, as, a, as a Sunni outlet, as a Sunni terrorist group, they cannot come either if it's a Tagari or it is, but in Afghanistan they were there, they can go back, Taliban can succeed if this pressure is, if the foreign troops will withdraw from Afghanistan. Everyone in Afghanistan knows that the Afghan government is going to collapse. Okay. And when they collapse, Taliban will take over. This is, this is imminent. Well, Professor Herman, we've heard both sides of the arguments that, that we can't afford to let the Taliban government uh, become a being again because al-Qaeda will have a resurgence. On the other hand, that al-Qaeda, the contrary argument, isn't in any great position to do a damage to the United States, even if we withdraw. And Americans are on both sides uh, of that issue. What, what, what can you give us to illuminate us further? I want to agree that the real issue is stopping al-Qaeda. And I want to agree that I'm not sure winning in Afghanistan is necessary to do that. And I think also that it's important not to reinforce the notion that the United States is losing in some sense against Islamic movements in the Middle East. but. It's also important to recognize at some point the United States is going to not be in the Middle East and Muslims are. So at some point we're going to leave. And it's a question on what kind of terms. And the idea that we're going to win in Afghanistan is one that I have trouble getting my head around in terms of what that would look like, what that would mean exactly. And something I want to point out, I guess, and I'm going to show a map or two, is that I'm afraid that to stabilize Pakistan, which I think would be a nice agenda, I don't want to even stabilize Afghanistan, we're simply crosswise with the most powerful political forces in the region, which is certainly not the Taliban per se. And so let me just take two minutes uh, to make a couple points. We've been talking about Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan as if these were integrated, ethnically homogeneous countries that are somehow united around something, and that's just not the case. Uh, Pakistan, I'm going to show you a brief map. Pakistan's a country that has four basic ethnicities in it. It's dominated by Punjabis. Uh, Benazir Bhutto was a Sindhi, and you know she was assassinated. The point I want to make is that the northwest frontier of Pakistan is Pashtun, and the majority population in Afghanistan is Pashtun. And the boundary between those two has never been well defined, and the notion that these are two separate communities is hard to sustain. In 1971, as Alam said, uh, this is when I think this really began, India uh, separated in conjunction with Bangladesh, East Pakistan. And ever since that separation of East Pakistan from Pakistan, the Punjabis who rule in Pakistan have been worried that India will play with Pashtun nationalism and try to divide 
Pakistan by carving off the Pushtun, uh, stoking up Pushtun ethnic nationalism. Now, the Pakistani response to this for 30 years, as plain as day, has been to encourage Islamic unity. That's what holds Pakistan together. The only reason there is Pakistan is so that there would be a state for Muslims carved out of the former Indian Raj. The effort to increase Islamic identity was crystal clear in the 80s, just as Alam said. And when we left, and it took the form there of the Mujahideen, and we were in, we were in line with that. It was the largest single CIA operation since Vietnam. We poured in money to the Pakistani, to the ISI, who delivered it mostly to Pushtuns, but also to Tajiks in Afghanistan to fight the communists, but to unite around the concept of Islam as the glue that holds Pakistan together and not Pushtun nationalism. Then, of course, in uh, the 90s, we got out of the story. The Pakistanis did not. The Pakistanis secret intelligence groups built the Taliban, which is the Pushtun-dominated group that is Islamically oriented and willing to ally with the Islamists in Pakistan. That's what the Taliban started as. That's what it is now. The vast majority of it. Most of its leadership is Pushtun. When we overthrew them, could you put the map of Afghanistan up now? When we overthrew them in 2003, we allied with something called the Northern Alliance, which is Tajik. We, we armed and, and worked closely with the Tajiks. Every major military commander today in, in, in Afghanistan is Tajik. That's one of the problems with this regime. It has a Pushtun figurehead at the top, Hamid Karzai, who worked closely with CIA in the 1980s and was originally with Taliban. Then they murdered his father in 1999. He turned against them. Uh, and he's the Pushtun face for a government that's largely led by Tajik military which overthrew the Pushtun, who were dominating through the Taliban. Now we're saying we're going to root out the Taliban. We're going to root them out of Pakistan, and we're going to root them out of Afghanistan. I just look at this, and I shake my head. We're going to invade. That is, the Pakistani army that created the Taliban is going to invade and root them out of the Waziristan in the Pushtun-dominated areas of Pakistan, when basically the army of Pakistan is worried, since it's Punjabi-dominated, that the Pushtun nationalists will take over if the Taliban are defeated and don't hold this together in Islamic terms. And in Afghanistan, we've gotten ourselves into a situation now where we have a regime that's corrupt, as Alam said. Mershan has sent a number of uh, anthropologists there, and you know when they come back, and they all tell us the same story. The government in Kabul has appointed governors in all the local areas. These governors came from Kabul. They don't have local roots. They're reporting back to Karzai. They've established their patronage system in the local region, driving out the traditional local leaders in each of these areas, and then demanding protection money and patronage. People are fed up with this, and very often coming in with ethnic community lines that don't match with the local community. So if we're going to succeed in stabilizing either Pakistan or Afghanistan, I think we're going to have to start thinking about political solutions that have at least a minimal level of viability in the area. And my last comment would be, I, I think that the Al-Qaeda crowd that we tend to focus on were basically Arabs who came there, as Alam said, in the 80s to fight the communists. I think their relation to Taliban is much more complicated than we tend to think. Uh, they probably remain a danger whether we need to go to war there, I don't know. But without a government that has some credibility in, in Kabul, that is, can accommodate the Pushtun, not just the Tajiks, and because they're the majority of the country after all. 
and who can respect the notion of local autonomy that has been the sort of raison d'etre of governance in Afghanistan for a very long time. Uh, I don't see how any kind of winning hearts and minds is going to be possible. So any kind of replication of what we did in Iraq, I think, is going to run into really difficult problems here, given the nature of the regime we're now trying to bolster. So, so given that we have a corrupt government in Kabul, with all the contradictions and obstacles you talk about, what is, is there a good course of action here for the United States? No, and I think that's why the president's been scratching his head and trying to think this through, that he recognizes, I think, that a counterinsurgency effort, as General McChrystal calls for, depends entirely on us providing, a, uh, rallying people around the notion of a credible government that we could be allied to. So that they come to see us not as occupiers, which they currently do, but as allies. But if all they come to see us, see us as is kingmakers, putting the next guy in power, first Tajik and now you know with the push in face, uh, I think you know that they're not going to rally around this government. And we, you know, some of us are old, and we've been here before. This is you know, but we don't have General Two in the wings to bring in. Uh, Colonel Mansour, let me get, get back to you. We have uh, an apparently very corrupt uh, government under Hamid Karzai in Kabul. Let's talk about our American government. Do you think President Obama has, has, the, has a strong interest in fighting this war? Some conservative commentators recently have suggested that he really doesn't. What do you think? Well, his heart is really with domestic political matters. That's pretty clear. But he is the president of the United States. He is responsible for our foreign policy. And he has a, a, an interest, therefore, in seeing it, the national security interests of the United States met. And so he is wrestling with uh, this very thorny uh, question. Because, you know, Dr. Herman is exactly right. Without a legitimate government, that the Afghan people can support. In the long run, anything we do in terms of a counterinsurgency campaign will be for naught. Will be for naught. So why not withdraw, given that? No, because I think that it is possible to help the Afghan government reform. In fact, I think one of the reasons that President Obama has been delaying announcing sending more troops to Afghanistan is to pressure Karzai and to use the current uh, interregnum as leverage against him in order to force him to reform his government. Uh, it's much easier to uh, tell Karzai we're thinking of continuing uh, uh, troop levels as they are rather than reinforce than it would be once the troops are on the ground to say we're going to pull them out unless you unless you uh, reform. So, you know, I think that the current impasse right now is being used for uh, diplomatic leverage, um, but it's vitally important, I think, to stabilize Afghanistan before we withdraw. I think in the long run, we all have the same goal in mind. We want U.S. troops out of there. The question is, is under what conditions should we withdraw them? Sylvia Chase, who used to be a national public radio correspondent, she now runs a small aid organization uh, in Af Afghanistan. She says the corruption is so extreme the government, it even reaches down to the average policeman on the street. The people in the, the little villages can't even trust the policemen not to, uh, to do what they need to have done without a bribe. Um, given that level, uh, Colonel Munster, given that, that level of corruption, why would we ever think that the uh, Karzai government uh, could be persuaded to reform the corruption seems endemic from top to bottom? Well, it's endemic throughout the world. I mean, 
<laughs> we have, you know, Governor Blagovich or whatever it is in Illinois, and we have a certain amount of corruption in our political system as well. Uh, the, the issue is, can the needs of the Afghan people be met and within a culturally, uh, within their cultural context? And this is where we need to provide them civilian expertise as well as just military troops in order to help them uh, meet the essential needs of the Afghan people. And I think we need to, where we should be pressuring Karzai right now, besides reforming at the top, is to uh, force him to accept some sort of system that, uh, where district and provincial governors are elected, not appointed by him. Um, this can be a tough sell because he, he holds all the power right now. But if you were to design a system that the Afghan people uh, hated more, I don't think you would come up with one uh, that's significantly different than the, than the one that's in place because it, it created this very centralized Afghan state in a society that, that favors decentralized political power. Can the United States continue this enterprise, continue this war, as you suggest, given that the American people are divided, I mean, in terms of public opinion? Uh, would you see public opinion standing in the way of successful prosecution? Sure we can. I mean, the American people were actually more divided over the surge in 2006 and 2007 than they are over Afghanistan today. And the difference right now, back then and, and now, is presidential leadership. If the president wants to lead and tell the American people that this is in their, our interest to stay and that he's in it to win, then, uh, then he can make it stick. But it's going to cost him... Uh, some of his uh, political uh, uh, coin to do it. And it remains to be seen whether he's willing to spend it. So Americans can be persuaded by an effective leadership. Effective leadership and results on the ground. Yeah. I mean, had the, had the surge failed, then, of course, I think we would have seen a, a more rapid withdrawal from Iraq than, than what, what, what's going to happen. Professor Miller, you, you study American public opinion, and, and it's, is, is it true, as Colonel Lemser says, that uh, uh, given a war application that uh, with a strong leadership and uh, moral persuasion, let's say, that a leader can turn opinion around? Uh, well, it doesn't look very good. Basically, what's happened in Iraq, Pete's uh, uh, basically right, that uh, there's the surge has been seen to be successful. And the percentage of people thinking that think that war is going well, percentage of people thinking that uh, victory is closer and so forth has gone up substantially. Percentage of people thinking that the war was a good idea has not changed at all, and the percentage of people thinking that George Bush, uh, his leadership in Iraq, which, uh, is good, has not changed at all. It surged from 31 percent to 32 percent uh, uh, with, with the surge. So that, that objectively, they say things are going better, and then the result of that is they just don't pay any attention anymore. Uh, but it does. But there's not been a turnaround in uh, uh, public opinion in terms of supporting the war. In the case of Afghanistan, there's some particular problems. It could be a disaster, a total disaster for the Democrats. Uh, what happened is that uh, when Lyndon Johnson came into office uh, and it escalated in Vietnam, he had in his back pocket a whole bunch of congressmen and women uh, who had been brought in with him on his coattails in 1964. And they were mostly people worried about you know, economics and welfare and the usual things Democrats spend most of the time talking about. Uh, the Democrats who have come in this time have been brought in essentially by the anti-war movement, uh, move on, etc. Working very subtly, there's been a very strong anti-war movement in this war, as opposed to one in Vietnam. And unlike the one in Vietnam, this one has been successful. What they did is work within party politics, finding often, very often, 
uh, bits of the Iraq war to run on an anti-war platform uh, against um, against Republicans. And they, you know, you got to the weak seats for the Republicans and worked on that. So what it means is that the background is not only is public opinion soft on this issue, uh, but Congress even more so, which is probably more important, is also soft. You've got a lot of anti-war Democrats who were brought in on anti-war tickets. Uh, there's a couple of things that can happen. One for Obama. One is that the uh, the bottom drops out of the Democratic uh, is Democratic support, even though Democrats are strongly in favor of Obama and a whole bunch of other things like health care. And it may also be that the next year's election, Democrats that, that, that was very strong, uh, high, you know, extremely well organized campaigners that brought in Obama, who was the only candidate running who opposed the first war, the, the, the Iraq War. Uh, that, that they'll basically sit on their hands uh, in, 2000, in, in the next election with the result that the Republicans will do extremely well. Um, and that would possibly boost support for the war because the Republicans are now the place where Obama gets most of the support. But in terms of public opinion and, more importantly, I think probably congressional opinion, Obama's uh, got a real dilemma in front of him. Professor Miller, I guess what Congress is ultimately required to do is to vote money for the war, which which they they did and have done for the Iraq War, even with the Democratic majority in the House. Um, so Congress will, I would imagine, and as you point, if more if more Republicans are elected, it's even more likely to continue uh, voting money for the war, which is, I guess all the president needs them to do. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it's well, it's a problem. But basically, uh, the, the Democrats, I mean, to win an election, you need campaigners and people, you know, pushing doorbells and uh, issuing bumper stickers and all the rallies. And the Democrats don't do that. It's essentially what happened to Clinton in 1994. The so-called Gingrich Revolution is mostly Democrats sitting on their hands because they're alienated by his policy with respect to NAFTA. And so I think that's, that's something like that could happen again. Well, what is the percentage currently of Americans who say that the uh, war in Afghanistan is not worth fighting? It's, it's more than 50, uh, it's less than 50% on that particular question. There's a, there's a problem with that question because if you say it was a mistake to get into the war in Afghanistan, it's a tricky one because there's actually been two wars. The first one against Al-Qaeda, which seems to been very successful, and people supported that. And now there's later ones, so it's not quite clear what the questions mean all the time. But as Rick also pointed out, uh, there's been, a, particularly in the last year, a real decline in support for the war. And some and some, some questions that Rick mentioned, uh, you get uh, basically uh, majority opposition, majority opposition on the war. We've talked a little bit about the Predator drone flights, uh, which shoot missiles from unmanned aircraft into small villages in Pakistan along the border with Afghanistan, and they've killed apparently a couple of dozen suspected militants, suspected terrorists. Uh, but when Secretary of State Hillary Clinton recently visited Pakistan, she was asked, because uh, Pakistani authorities claimed that several hundred uh, civilians were killed by these Predator drones, um, including uh, uh, children and other innocents, and th that is what they say. So Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was asked, um, are these predator drone flights effectively, are they terrorism, she was asked. And she immediately said, no, they're not. Of course, the sense of the question, look, you have these predator drone flights, unmanned missiles, they are killing our civilians as well as the bad guys. Uh, she said no, that the flights were not terrorism, but she didn't explain it any further. Could any of you tell me why those uh, drone flights are not terrorism or why they are? I mean, do you have an opinion and how would you talk about the unintended killing of innocents by the predator drone flights? One quick thing. 
uh, uh, there's the issue about collateral damage, of course, and so forth. But uh, when you read the accounts, the, the predator flights seem to be one of the, uh, the main, one of the main reasons people turn to the Taliban. And the Taliban hypes that, you know, even if no civilians are killed, they're still going to hype that some civilians were killed. So it's a really difficult issue. Um, and that and the corrupt government, I think, are the best things going for the Taliban. Kind of master, I think you wanted to answer that question for the Secretary of State, or at least elaborate on her explanation. Right. Well, I'm not a big fan of the predator drone strikes for exactly the reason that, that Dr. Mueller uh, pointed out. It does create a lot of support for the terrorists, even though it kills a lot. We've killed hundreds of Al-Qaeda and Taliban operatives with these strikes, which are, by the way, uh, reportedly condoned by the Pakistani government, just not publicly. Um, but I think this this highlights the problem with a pure counter-terrorist strategy. Uh, there is some discussion uh, reportedly by the vice president that, well, why don't we withdraw draw down our troops, just protect a few big bases, and then use special operating forces and predator drone strikes to, to kill terrorists. But this is exactly the problem. You, you, have, you have collateral damage because you don't have troops on the ground. The enemy will, will own the propaganda as a result of the strikes. And you'll take a black eye in, in the media and you'll take a black eye among the people. What we found during the surge in Iraq is, is the best way in order to destroy a terrorist organization is to take and hold ground with security forces, be they police, army, tribal militias, whatever. And then uh, that forces the terrorist and insurgent operatives to, to move and communicate because they no longer can intimidate the people into silence. And then they can be hunted down and killed or captured with special operating forces or, or whatever forces you want to use. Uh, and this is what General McChrystal's trying to do in Afghanistan, but to sit back on large bases and somehow think we can plink away and destroy these very robust terrorist networks, I think, is a fool's error. Well, we, we've talked about tactics and strategy, and we've talked about American security, but if we could just talk uh, for a couple of minutes about the ethical question of war, uh, the Roman Catholic Pope Benedict, when he was uh, uh, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, told an Italian Catholic magazine in the early 2003, he said the idea of a just war uh, under just war theory, if you aim at a military target and you unintentionally, uh, nonetheless, uh, hit civilians, as happens very frequently, you can't aim perfectly. He said there are so many civilian casualties uh, in modern warfare that we may have to begin to ask the question, is it ever moral to wage warfare? Um, in, in view of the thousands, I would think, of Afghan uh, deaths and injuries, um, Dr. Payand, uh, at, at the hands of coalition bombs, at the hands of suicide bombers, the Taliban, people caught in the crossfire, uh, men, women, children, elderly people who can't get out of the way. Do we need to take a look at the ethical nature of this war? Is it moral to wage this war? The situation in Afghanistan and Pakistan is different. These drones, despite the planes uh, which are dropping those missiles, in Pakistan, the establishment is either Sindhi or Punjabi. These drones are all in the Pashtun area, so that's why the government and the establishment is not that untied. That's why they're condoning it. The same is not working in Afghanistan, but Pashtuns are a pluralistic majority, and the government, the head of the government, is a Pashtun. And that's one reason why Hamid Karvei is extremely sensitive to the area of the market. He's complained about these civilian deaths on the country yes, for many years. So, so, so his sensitivity, you will see that. The same is not because of the tribal mix 
the ethnic mix in Pakistan is much different than the ethnic mix uh, in Afghanistan. That's one thing. A second, uh, the, in this year, 2009, over 3,000, only civilians have been killed in Afghanistan. Civilians, I'm not talking about the Taliban, the people that were killing guns. The non-combatants. Uh, of this 3,000 civilians, uh, about 60%, all of estimates, that 60% have been killed by by suicidal bomb, bombers and the roadside bombs and that sort of thing. And about 40% of that by the, by, by the United States and the coalition and the ISAF, which is the International Security Assistance Forces. <laughs> so this, the, the, the casualty, that I don't know if you have heard this about a month ago, the two tankers which were taken away in the north part of, northern part of Afghanistan, uh, and those tankers were put destroyed by the Taliban, and finally the villagers came, and one of the German commanders got panicked and ordered the area bombardment, and over 120 civilians were killed. So when I went to just Kandahar about three weeks ago, the same thing, daily villages are bombarded, and one or two Taliban members are killed, and the rest of them are the villagers. Uh, hundreds and thousands of them have just taken refuge, come to the cities from villages. They're moving from those areas where there are some sort of fighting going on and bombardment going on. So it's, it's one of the things that which is turning the people against the Karzai government and against the supporters of the Karzai government, the United States and the Washington That's the practical result that people being turned against the government, but ethically, can we justify such warfare? That in, in, in Afghanistan, neither in the religion of Afghanistan, nor in the practice and traditions of Afghanistan, that sort of uh, indiscriminate killing has been accepted by anyone including the Afghan government, so let alone that when it's done by, by, by support and support. They, they do not accept such killings. So it's not accepted, it's a, well, first of all, look at the, the statistics in Afghanistan. One out of four children die before the age of five. Then others die by childhood disease and this and that. And then when some of them, you ask any one of those women in, in villages, like, how many children do you have? First, they will tell you nine. And how many are alive? Three or four. So in that sort of situation, this aerial bombardment of killing the rest of them, that which are reaching the ages of adulthood, is, is creating a different set of problems in Afghanistan than probably in, 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 in Pakistan. So, Dr. Dr. Payne, if I understand what you're saying correctly, the religion of Islam is the majority religion in, in Afghanistan, right? And it does not support the killing of innocents under any circumstances. Is no, yeah. a, as far as the religion is concerned, yeah. uh, that's the killing of innocent person, Jew, Christian, Muslim, anyone, that's against the religion. But now how these terrorists are justifying this, uh, that's exactly the same way that was collateral damage. So that yes. since all kids are killed by with this, uh, the government and the government supporters, so it's speaking for us to go into. I mean, the Dutch government is that using, but it's, it does not hold as far as the religion, the Sharia of Islam, in any branch of the Sharia, whether it's the four Sunni schools or the three Shia schools. So the killing of the innocent person is against, against Islam. So, from an Islamic perspective, both the United States and its allies and the Taliban and their allies should cease fighting because the killing innocents. Yes, the, the killing of the, of, the, of the other person is allowed under very strict conditions. One is that self-defense, another one is that if you have to religion, your country is attacked uh, in that sort of situation. And adultery, for example. But, uh, these are very few 
or if, if someone killed my father and then the courts will come and then find him with the witnesses and others, so that person will be with the capital punishment is accepted. But otherwise, uh, the killing of an innocent person or a civilian is against the legal against the let me just ask our panelists from a Judeo-Christian perspective, uh, to put it succinctly, if uh, President Obama's children, Sasha and Aliyah, have lifetime secret service protection, or at least while he's in office, as they should, uh, yet we don't extend the same protection to the children of the villages of Pakistan upon whom we uh, loose our missiles, even though we don't intend their deaths, even though they will happen. Uh, Benedict has talked about the ethical question there. Uh, ethical conundrum. How do you feel about that? Would anybody on the panel like to uh, to answer that? The, um, the ethical issue for me, frankly, is that the United States did not come into this recently. And walking away from it, I don't know if that's so ethical. This Taliban is the uh, result, in my view, of Pakistani policy that we aided and abetted and fueled and the 1980s, as Alam said. And when the Russians invaded, we did everything we could to stop the kind of progressive policies the Soviet Union was trying to implement. And now a lot of what they were doing was brutal. A lot of what we're doing is brutal. And the infant mortality rate in Afghanistan is still 157 over 1,000. It's the third highest in the world. So basic medicine, basic healthcare. It's just pathetic. And that's after we spent 10 years stopping the Soviets from trying to modernize the place, doing everything we could to support the people now we say we got to stop and knock them out. Putting every kind of weapon system we could imagine into the hands of the Mujahideen and militarizing this situation. And now we say, gee, killings, that's unethical. We use these people. We use them and, the, and we're using them now. We use them to go get Al-Qaeda. We used them to get the Soviet Union, then we used the Northern Alliance to go get Al-Qaeda just six years ago. And it seems to me, uh, it's not quite like Colin Paul said, you broke it, it's yours. We had a big role in this. We were the military providers, and we were on the side of Pakistan and, this, and the Taliban. And I think now we're paying a price for that, that we don't know how to extricate ourselves from. And I'm not sure that, that the Taliban would be, of the, if I'm quite sure it's a counterfactual argument, that they would be what they are or have the power they have if we hadn't been involved in all this. And frankly, if the Taliban took over in this country, I would fight them. And I'd be looking for every kind of support I could find from anywhere in the world for people who would try to help me prevent that kind of rule over me and my country. And to the degree that we can help, it seems to me, uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan find stable governance in uh, some, some norms that make sense, I'd be, I'd be in favor of that. But what we're doing now, it seems to me, is trying to, as I mentioned in my first comment, support a government that is ethnically crosswise with the main forces of, of the society. We're making terrible mistakes. It's not just the drones. I spent a week this summer in Cambridge, uh, at, in England, with people from ISAF, and we were looking at some of the mistakes we've made in building water ducks and farming and we've ruined the water system of various villages. We were well-meaning, we just didn't understand what was going on. And we ended up you know, putting people without water for eight or ten months. Taliban have made it a field day of these kinds of mistakes we've made because they say that was intentional to destroy your crops and to do this and to do that. It's not just the drones. You cut off people's water 
for months at a time, it's just devastating. And, you know, the Taliban rules because they're, people are afraid of them uh, or ethnically affiliated with them. And in Pakistan, it's become doubly difficult because the Taliban have decided to make this a class war. It's probably opportunistic. But they've decided to attack the feudal structure of the landholding class in Pakistan and tell the non-landholders, if you support us, you can go take their land. This is popular stuff against landholders who are living in London and been absentee landlords in Pakistan. And Pakistan is not exactly what I would call a super modern society either. Alam can speak much more authoritatively than me on this. But Fred, I guess for me, the ethical issues here, to come back to it, are just so much more complicated than whether it's okay to drop a bomb on somebody this year. Uh, as a because we're into this up to our eyeballs. So, Professor Herman, you would say we you would say we have an ethical obligation, a humanitarian obligation, to continue to try to bring a stable government to Afghanistan. Yeah, I do. Everybody in the panel agree with that that we have a humanitarian and ethical obligation to Professor Mueller. Yeah, there. I think that's a real problem. That uh, you can make a case for being in Afghanistan entirely humanitarian. Uh, it's questionable whether I mean whether it's possible. And of course, the way of solving the problem is to kill a lot of people, and a lot of people, Americans, get killed in the process, and as we take into consideration. Uh, if you really want to save people, the place to do it is in Eastern Congo, uh, where people are killing, being killed in much greater number, and where troops probably could bring stability. Uh, the issue, basically, is just uh, the, the difficulty of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, the corruption. Uh, and uh, someone has to also tell me is, you know, what, what military plan is going to cause the Taliban to be willing to stop fighting. In other words, would they, in Vietnam, what the communists said, well, we're going to fight 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And uh, that was not quite put to the test, but they never, their, their ability to continue fighting never waned. Uh, they seemed to be willing to keep going after it, even, even when they had major military losses. So the question is, is there any way to get the uh, Taliban to basically give up, lose, or are they going to continue at least at this level forever, where it's a relatively easy level to uh, to continue at? And also, if you're going to lose, you know, a thousand American lives per year, do you want to continue this for five, ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty-seven years, and take those casualties for a situation which, basically, in my view, has absolutely no bearing on American national security, whatever? Can, can we virtually none? Can we project if, if we would follow uh, Professor Bay, your advice and, and withdraw that? that Deaths would be fewer, casualties would be fewer, suffering would be less over time. If, if basically you could come up with a plan which would be efficient and uh, could stop the war, um, then you know I'd, I'd be willing to look at it because the humanitarian argument is basically a valid one. And I think also the Taliban, the, uh, the Afghans don't really want the Taliban back. But uh, as we were talking before, you know you go through a checkpoint. And if it's a Taliban, ch ch Taliban checkpoint, they check you over and they let you go. If you go through a government checkpoint, the government uh, officials shake you down. Uh, that's endemic throughout the whole country and how you're going to be reformed. This guy saying, okay, can't do that anymore. We'll slap you on the wrist, whatever. Good luck. And this, and uh, the, the prognosis on this is it just uh, 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 very, very poor. A friend of mine, uh, Peter Bergen, who disagrees with everything I just said, basically, uh, did an article in New Republic recently, and his thing is, I think it's not impossible that we could win in, Afghan in Afghanistan. So it's, you know, once more into the breach, it's not impossible. I mean, what kind of a war cry is that? Just before, in just a moment, we'll go to your, to your questions, but before we do, I think uh, 
Dr. Payen, Colonel Bansir, you have things you'd like to add here before we go to audience questions? I have a lot of things I'd like to add, but I don't know that we have the time. I believe it's, it would be immoral to abandon the Afghan people uh, who helped us fight and eject al-Qaeda from their country, who fought the Taliban at our insistence, and who would be killed in large numbers should the Taliban return to power. There is no doubt that they would take their vengeance on anyone who supported NATO, the United States, or ISAF. And there would be tens of thousands of Afghans brutally murdered by the Taliban should they regain power. And the United States should not, should not be part of any kind of uh, situation where we allow that to happen. You know, the sad fact is, in eight years, we have not yet tried to win this war. This war has been an economy of force effort while we went on, and I agree with John in this case, to an unneeded venture in Iraq. And now that we have the chance to focus on this conflict, we're thinking, well, it's just going to be too hard. But the fact is, is that it's not going to be too hard. It's going to be long, and it's going to take some effort, but it is not going to be uh, on the scale even of Iraq. You know, we've lost 800 dead in Afghanistan, and all, each one is a tragedy for the family involved. That's one quarter of the number of soldiers we lost on Omaha Beach on D-Day. It is one-fifth the number, one-sixth the number that we lost in Iraq so far. Um, this war is possible. General McChrystal has the right strategy. He just needs, uh, needs to be resourced. And I want to make one final comment. The Taliban is not going to negotiate when they believe they're winning. They will not negotiate from a, from a position of strength. So if we all agree the solution to this conflict is political, but you have to set them back on their heels before they're going to be willing to negotiate and come to terms with some sort of uh, mediation. Dr. Payant. Uh, when you talk to Afghans, uh, educated Afghans, uh, they will tell you that it's not the, our problem is not too much power in the hands of the Taliban. It's too less power in the hands of the central government and unpopularity of the central government. There were mistakes avoidable from the beginning. Uh, one is that the current constitution of Afghanistan, which is a presidential system, does not suit the country's past. Uh, parliamentary system, probably. That's what legal experts in Afghanistan are thinking. That that's such one mistake. Too much power in the hands of the executive, someone who is uh, popularly elected at Hamid Karzai. Coming back to the, the question of corruption. Corruption, we only think that somebody is driving someone uh, money for something to be done. Even in a, when you pay your electric bill in Afghanistan, you have to pay. I just went and I went with someone to just see whether it's true or not. Uh, he was going to pay his electric bill and then the person was asking bribe from that person. So that's to that extent. Judges. Uh, and we, we neglect that. The money that which goes to Afghanistan from outside, only about 25 to 30% goes through the government of Afghanistan. The rest of them is through this international, in, in, international NGOs that are corrupt. Then they contract those to the local, to domestic NGOs. They are corrupt. There are hundreds of security, uh, private security agencies. I saw Ukrainians in Afghanistan. I saw Gorkhas in Afghanistan. I saw uh, people from other parts of Australians, British. Uh, they are different uh, security agencies. Each one of those people are paid about between 500 to 1500 per day when they are <coughs> providing those security for this is like the black water and the Halliburton. We, we know about all this. These war profiteers are 
So this is the level of corruption. Karzai's three older brothers are extremely corrupt. They are now in land confiscation of the people that are in small cities. And one brother is in the, 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 the coal mine, the textile, the Toyota agencies. And another brother is who is his half-brother from a different mother in Kandahar, which we hear about him about the, he's involved with the drug uh, trafficking. He's his half-brother does not listen to him. Because he comes from a different mother, he's just sitting among his people by the tribes. So these are some of the things. And also, the people that who have uh, advised on the current constitution of Afghanistan, they were people from outside, like the Mayhra for example, uh, Anwar al-Haqqa Hadi, who became Minister of Finance in Afghanistan, uh, and uh, also uh, many of them were the guys that who left Afghanistan when they were only high school graduates. They went to American University in Beirut, and then from there came to the United States, and they have spent more time in, in the United States and outside Afghanistan than Afghanistan. So they were the people that who went from the beginning, and they are now the people that who are making most of the, the policy decisions of their advisors. So those were the mistakes, and also the big mistake which was made in Afghanistan was that we outsourced everything to Pakistan. We listened to Pakistan. And Congressman Lee Hamilton, uh, who was the chair of the subcommittee of foreign relations in the, in, in the United States House of Representatives until 1994, then he was the co-chair of the, the investigation of the 9-11 Commission. He wrote an article in the Christian Science Monitor of uh, 1994. He made a, a statement which Afghans have taken to heart that uh, uh, we are insensitive to deeply rooted and complex issues in most of these Middle East and part of Asia. Uh, and we have been listening too much to our allies in the region that whose national security interests may not be congruent or parallel to the American security. So this is, I'm done that this is, I'm paraphrasing what he said. So that is something that which we have not done it. Uh, one example is that I just came from Kandahar, I was, three weeks ago I was there, the post-election. Uh, Kandahar, from outside we see that the Pashtun province, the second largest province in Afghanistan. But among the Pashtuns, we have the Rajai Pashtuns, the Durani Pashtuns, and the Kakar. Kandahar is the hub of the Durani Pashtuns. In the Durani Pashtuns in Kandahar, there are three major tribes. One is Alukuzai, another one is Popanzai, and then Barakzai. Then there are other small Durani tribes. Hamid Karzai comes from the Popanzai tribe. And in the past four years, 111 big and small commanders of the Alukuzai tribe have been assassinated and killed. Mysteriously, nobody is in custody. And that's what President Trump in Kandahar is manipulating. So this is something that I do not know. This has not come in the press in this country. And they might, I'm, I'm certain that Americans know about this, the British know about this, because British and Canadians are in Kandahar. They are pressuring now Hamid Karzai to get rid of his brother from, or at least remove him from Kandahar. Otherwise, he is very determined. So these are avoidable mistakes that we have made and we still continue to make. All right. We um, have two microphone positions down here. We have some time for your questions. And uh, I'd like to ask you if you would be courteous and make them questions. Uh, 
a brief statement is okay, but we'd like you to proceed pretty quickly to a question for our panel. And uh, once again, uh, Richard Herman, director of the Mershon Center, uh, Peter Mansour, uh, chair of uh, Raymond Mason, chair of military history, uh, at the far end, John Mueller in the middle of the Woody Hayes Chair of National Security Studies at Mershon, uh, Alan Payen, director of the Middle East Studies Center here at OSU, and we'll uh, go to your questions. Yes. Uh, my name is Logan West. I'm an international studies student. My question is basically to the whole panel, and it's on the stability of Afghanistan. Um, tonight, the panel has talked a lot about kind of a lot of ethnic tensions and a lot of problems with really seems to keeping Afghanistan as a country unified, and it seems like very little unifies the country of Afghanistan. So my question is, would an ideal situation for us for a stable Afghan region necessarily constitute keeping Afghanistan as a country, or would it be better to split it up along ethnic slash linguistic lines for maybe more stable, smaller countries, but would be more united ethnically? Okay, did, did everyone hear the question? Anybody who didn't, raise your hand. Okay, we got it. Yes, who would like to answer? Uh, it is true that Afghanistan is a multi-ethnic, multiracial, multilingual society. But it has a history of at least 250 years. Uh, from 1747, that the name of Pakistan stuck. It used to be a territory uh, contested by different superpowers throughout the history. The Armenian Persians, the Greeks, Alexander the Great came to Afghanistan, and after that, Khan came to Afghanistan, and Mughals and Babur and others. And then the, the, the three times the British Empire twice in the 19th century and once in the 20th century, then the Soviet Union from 1979. But still that country, it is true that it is, in the, in the Western sense, it's not a nation state. That for people, the statehood and citizenship comes first, and then the ethnicity comes. In Afghanistan, usually we see the other way around. I'm a Pashtun first, then I'm an Afghan. I'm a Tajik first, I'm a Uzbek, I'm a Turkuman, I'm a Kazakh, Kyrgyz, that sort of thing. But still, it, it, it was not always like this. As I mentioned that, one of the things which was very detrimental to, the, to Afghanistan, and it will be for many more years to come, is which the Soviet Union destroyed all these dispute resolution mechanism, this tribal uh, hierarchies and system in the country. They did not establish anything. So they just left Afghanistan totally uh, fragmented. And then... So the Soviet what yeah, what a system which existed for at least for at least five hundred or two hundred and fifty years when the name of Afghanistan has been associated with Afghanistan. So that social fabric, political fabric, those were all destroyed. Institutions, uh, the government institute, everything was destroyed. They wanted to create a totally new kind of uh, state in Afghanistan, those ten years. Uh, they did not succeed and left everything destroyed. And that's one reason why Afghanistan became a failed state after the Soviets left, just like Somalia, just like Rwanda and Cambodia for some time. So Afghanistan is classified as one of the failed states. And it's very difficult. No one has the recipe how to now make this failed state again a viable state. So neither Americans nor Russians nor Europeans. So there's all that struggling with what to do now in Afghanistan. So this is now the, the problem that we're dealing with. Okay. We have a question over here. Yes, sir. my name is Alex Katran. I'm a political scientist and businessman. And um, it seems like a lot of the problems that are stemming from Afghanistan, I mean, like he actually asked, is from the severe you know, uh, divides in the society. And my question for the entire panel is, 
Um, given that the current electoral system, the current government, has been completely unable to uh, reiterate those societal divides in Congress or in the whole ACG, uh, it's been completely unable to properly separate a power between the different um, uh, provinces in Afghanistan. Do you think that, one, should we look at uh, re reorganizing their government or forming a new electoral system like a more, a more proportional representation? And if you do believe that is something that we should do, how could we possibly now go to Karzai's government, which has obviously now um, sustained a second electoral win, and tell him that, uh, you know, it's not going to happen anymore. Are we, are we now okay. with Karzai for the next five years? All right, Professor Herman. We need I to reorganize that government. Yeah, I introduced these about maps, and I introduced this ethnic issue, but I don't want you to um, think that these are you know, highly homogeneous groups. I think uh, I'm very much in agreement with Alam that the differences within Pushtun and within various tribes and the like is very important. So I, I agree with his basic sentiment, better to keep the state together and not get too hung up on these divisions. They make very important trends in politics, but I think what has really been a mistake is to try to over-centralize power in Kabul uh, as and, and distinct from more local autonomy. And I think that's what they need to move back toward. And I don't think they'll get there because I think the support for Karzai has been sufficient that he's going to try to hang on to the central control he has. I think the other dilemma we face, and your question was um, indicative of this to me, is should we, should we do this, should we do that, should we do the next thing for their government? The Americans can't do this. That's the real rub. I mean, this is not possible, in my view, for Americans to go to a foreign country and set their government up for them and say, now you're going to have democracy. Well, we tried it this way for a few years, and guess what? We didn't understand your ethnic divisions very well, so we, we set up the wrong system. So now we're going to remake it another way. Whoever they elect and whatever they do, I mean, one of the labors, one of the problems Karzai labors under is he's seen very much as ours. And he is. So, I mean, it's a certain reality principle uh, to a lot of this. And it seems to me that this is where I guess I, I lean somewhat with John. We're going to have to give a lot more room. And what is going to happen, of course, is what you saw with Karzai. It's going to be corrupt and he's going to rig these elections. And I don't know. I, I wish I had the magic wand. I'm sure that's why the president's scratching his head, too. We have to fix a political system that's not ours, and we don't have any legitimacy when we try to fix it. The only advantage we have here over in Iraq is at least here, the notion of a multinational engagement is more real. And so if this is not just a US activity, maybe we could make this a more UN global thing and that would help legitimate the intervention a little more. But uh, I, otherwise, I don't see a good way out of here. Uh, Colonel Munzer, you'd like to add something here. Yeah, I'd like to remind the audience that the current system in Afghanistan, centralized as it is, and I don't think it works very well, was created by a lawyer Jirga of Afghan tribal leaders. And it was their decision to institute this system, which is loosely based or largely based, I guess, on the 1964 Afghan constitution. Um, so this was not necessarily the work of the United States, although you know, Ambassador Khalilzad obviously had a strong role in, in guiding them through it. There is room within the current constitution for making some improvements. One of the huge improvements would be if we could uh, convince Karzai to uh, allow 
district and provincial level leaders to be elected and not appointed by him. And they could do that without reconvening a lawyer Jurgen. And that, that alone would have a huge impact, I think, on the society. All right, Dr. Payet. Yeah, the, the lawyer Jurgen of 2001, uh, Mr. Mehdi Zat played a role to convince the King of Afghanistan, Zahir Shah, not to be a candidate. So that's, uh, that, that's normal. So the lawyer Jurgen and the tribal leaders did not know what his they were used to their own monarchy and that sort of feudal system which existed, the presidential system is, 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 is totally a, a product, the only one country in which really works good is the United States. So that's, uh, that, that's something that it was also introduced from outside uh, to the Afghan. Now, how, how are Afghan, what are Afghans saying about how can they solve this post-election, this corrupt election, this fraudulent election? Uh, I talked to some of the Afghan uh, experts, legal experts, and professors, and also common people. Their recipes are for solving this current corrupt election just took place on August the 20th. One is that there should be a power sharing government, unity government. Because after 1.3 million votes of Karzai, Karzai's vote were thrown out by the United Nations supported uh, electoral, electoral complaint commission. So one third of his votes were considered to be thrown out. They were not good votes. Uh, After the adjustment, Karzai did not uh, succeed to achieve 50 plus 1 percent of the vote. So that's why there was a runoff election uh, was supposed to be on the 7th of this month. So Abdullah Abdullah, his main challenger, who got about 28 to 30% of the vote, he did not participate. So what happens? He did not participate because he thought there is no guarantee that there will be no corruption again because no one was fired, no one was put into prison. The same governors are that who did participate in this election, they were still in the place. So that's what they say, that there has to be a unity government, no power sharing, that's one solution. Suggesting Afghans are suggesting this. The second one is the lawyer jirga. They should reconvene an emergency lawyer jirga, the tribal groups, not be manipulated just like the Mehdi Zad and others did, did in the past. So they will be allowed to just go and probably chart a course for the future. <coughs> what kind of system they want? That's third. The, fourth, the third one is that Karzai should step down because now he is considered as an illegitimate. Okay. He, was, he was corrupt and ineffective and, uh, and impotent and that sort of thing, all sorts of now he is considered to be illegitimate. So he should step down and under the elected body, which are the two houses of the Afghan parliament, the, the House of Representatives and the Senate, under their leadership, a, a, a caretaker government should be established for a temporary six or seven months. Under their leadership, the next full election will be declared and they should not participate in the future. So there are some... Uh, plans and some policies suggested by that, but I don't know who listens to them, that's a different matter. All right, we have uh, another question over here. Thank you. Uh, as My name is Alan Lines, a professor emeritus at Agricultural College. I've recently been appointed, accepted an appointment, USDA, to a trilateral Afghan-US-Pakistan working group essentially to work in the area of reconstruction and winning the hearts and minds of the people, if you will. 
I think I heard Dr. Herman make some suggestions, some comments about the hearts and minds effort. I think I heard the same thing from Dr. Lee, and I heard the same thing, not the same items, but also from Colonel Mashuki. Would each of you give me a, a, a sense of what you really think about efforts like USDA going into this area in a reconstruction and maybe relate to the PRT units that the military is engaged in in this area of the world? Is this a, a false effort on our part, or is it something we can look to or make something out of it? understand we just have a couple of minutes left, so if you'd all be very brief, uh, Professor. Yeah, uh, to encapsulate that question a little bit further, the question is, can a country that can't get the schools in Washington, D.C. to work re-engineer a country very far away, very large and very complicated, while being shot at? <laughs> well, let's like to come to Professor Herman. I'll, I'll take a different point of view. Uh, not that I disagree that the U.S. is not uh, always efficient, but Alan, I think you can make a difference. I think that uh, we've made mistakes in the past. It doesn't mean we don't know how to increase food production. We don't know how to reduce infant mortality. We haven't really been doing the things we know how to do well. We've been doing one thing we know how to do well, which I guess is drop drones on people and uh, have uh, government power. But the, the result of the, of the anthropologists that we sent last year, and when I was in England this summer, they all said the primary complaints are just as Alam laid out. Corruption, uh, terrible problems with living standards, uh, food supply, of course, personal security. And if we could start improving any of those things rather than wrecking them, I, I don't know that we'd put over the hearts and minds, but at least we would be uh, moving in the right direction. It's not as if the culture rejects any importation of foreign things. I mean, I think that one of the themes that came through in the summer conference was that sometimes some of the military folks at ISAF were asking us to explain these culturally peculiar people and why they were doing such weird things. And we'd listen to much of what they would say as weird, and some of those things were unusual for Americans to see. But at the heart of it, the grievances are not this sort of cultural issue about whether women are dressing this way or that way or whether they're in school or not. It's corruption, it's local control taken by the center and then these corrupt situations put in, it's lack of person, it's stuff that every one of you would be reacting to the same way. So at some level, don't make it more complicated than it is. There's a lot we could do, uh, maybe, right? If, if you can really go there and help deliver food and deliver schools and things like that, I think you'll be welcome. Colonel Munster. If you go to Field Manual 324, the new counterinsurgency field manual uh, that the Army and Marine Corps used to fight counterinsurgency wars, you will not see the term hearts and minds in that manual uh, because it isn't about hearts and minds. The hearts and minds mantra uh, basically suggests that if you give things to people that they'll be grateful for you giving them things and therefore they'll support you. And that's just wrong because it won't happen. As long as they're under, uh, as long as the people are subject to insurgent threats and intimidation, uh, anything you give them will be gratefully accepted, and then it won't matter, make a difference at all in terms of whether you're going to win the counterinsurgency conflict. It is about the people's trust and confidence, trust that you can secure them, and confidence that the government, the host nation government. Can create their a better living, uh, a better life for them and their children and grandchildren. 
It's all about legitimacy. So, uh, you know, I applaud you for your willingness to serve with the USDA in Afghanistan. I think it's vitally important because that is a subsistence agricultural economy. And what you do will be helpful in terms of helping the Afghan people and thereby hopefully improving their vision of the legitimacy of their government. And it's not you giving them things. You should be helping the Afghan uh, agricultural ministry or the Afghan leaders in terms of uh, assisting them in improving their economy. It shouldn't be you doing it. You should be teaching them how to do it. Okay. We have time for maybe a couple of, maybe two more questions, quick ones. Uh, my name is Brad Poinis. I'm an uh, economics and political science major. Uh, kind of piggybacking off this topic, uh, we're approaching the neighborhood of $400 billion of U.S. spending in Afghanistan. To put that in perspective, the Afghan GDP is $12.5 billion a year. Um, and kind of maybe Colonel sort of, um to clarify that, if we're spending this year's budget is $65 billion for Afghan operations potentially or depending on a uh, Afghan surge, so to speak. Um, is it your feeling that if those resources were reallocated into the areas of roads, water, healthcare, education, that it would actually you would see a smaller return on that investment than the status quo uh, directed towards military operations? The, the issue is that security and reconstruction efforts go hand in hand. Uh, if you have one without the other, uh, you'll get nowhere. And so this idea that we can just do stuff for them and that that will end the insurgency is wrong. The idea that we can do what the Soviets did, and that is seek out and try to destroy the Taliban and devastate the country in the process, and that will end the insurgency, well, that's wrong too. Uh, you have to be able to protect the people. You have to prove that your vision, that this is, would be the vision of the Afghan government for the future, is better than the one that the Taliban is, is, is uh, providing to the people. And if you look at the polls, by the way, the Taliban polls an approval rating of 4%. This is not a military poll. It's an ABC News poll. The U.S., by the way, U.S. military polls over 60% approval. So, yeah, they may see us as occupiers, but... Uh, you know, they realize that our presence is necessary for the stability of that country, probably for years to come. You got to follow up? Yeah. Uh, do you see that the status quo is an appropriate balance with $65 billion a year directed towards military operations? No, we're, we're, we're overbalanced in terms of uh, a strategy that um, seeks to destroy the Taliban. And that's what General McChrystal is trying to do is, is to rein in, is to change that strategy and to create more of a counterinsurgency strategy that protects the Afghan people and uh, provides for uh, reconstruction efforts at the same time. So the, I think you'll see more money going into uh, those things that you mentioned. Yes, Professor Mueller. Yeah, I was just reading the thing today of somebody returning a report uh, from Afghanistan, and he said the Afghans were telling him that infrastructure was considerably better when the Soviets were there. So with a lot of effort, and maybe we can work up to that level. Let's keep trying. <laughs> we, we have time for one more quick question. Here you are. Uh, my name is David McKinney. I'm a journalism student here at OSU. Um, the sort of underlying idea that stuck with me from this discussion was that uh, the U.S. is responsible for creating a legitimate government in Afghanistan that uh, the people can support. And each of your words or each of your ideas um, 
I guess in one or two sentences, what exactly would that entail? Anybody care to answer that answer very quickly here? I think it's up to the Afghans to create a legitimate Afghan government. All we can do is is help them. Professor? Uh, yeah, I, I'm very fond of the word hopeless. <laughs> I think that's big applications. Professor, how about you? Yeah, I, we can't create a legitimate government for another country. That's just, uh, I just can't do that. But I, I thought we said what I thought we needed be doing, uh, whether we, we need to be focusing, in my view, uh, less on the military side of this and more on the political side, and I don't think we will, but I don't think this is a military war that we can win. And we'll give Dr. Payan the last word here very quickly. Yeah, the, the question of the legitimacy in Afghanistan has been raised uh, often, that uh, when Karzai, just like when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, they brought Karmal with them. So now Karzai came with American troops and the foreign troops to Afghanistan. So that's he, poor guy has been deprived of that legitimacy in the eyes of the Afghans to begin with. But it does not mean that they prefer Taliban more than, so I, I agree that uh, if you have uh, asked the people, the public opinions have shown that Taliban are not popular in Afghanistan. Uh, Americans are much more popular than, than, than the Taliban, so that, 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 that's a fact. And Afghans know that if there are no foreign troops in Afghanistan, Afghanistan will go back to the same situation as Taliban. And again, uh, we may have given you a clear picture of the situation in Afghanistan. When Taliban were in power, not a single university was functioning in Afghanistan. Three kinds of banknotes were published in different areas uh, of Afghanistan. So now there are 18 universities functioning, maybe not what we would call universities. About six, seven million children are going to schools. Roads have Kabul to Kandahar, for example. It took me the first time the road was not built. About one for four hours from Kandahar to Kabul. Now within five hours you can so, so these are the things which have been, but at, at a tremendous cost. Uh, one gentleman mentioned that uh, Afghan GDP has been uh, estimated around five billion dollars, and uh, that's, that's probably I do not know whether you factor the drug money into it or not. Ninety-three percent of the Afghan, which is produced in Afghanistan, which is all, some people say that's a six billion dollars. Half of them come from the illicit drugs and other. So we still do not know. Uh, Foreign aid, for example, uh, that's one reason why they do not want to channel it through the Afghan government, because there is no capacity. The Afghan government at this stage do not have the people really to implement uh, that, that kind of huge projects without uh, corruption. So these are all, uh, it, it, someone can think that probably it will take some time, but it's, the time is not now, uh, I should say that much. Yeah, for sure. The paradox for me is that we won't be able to sustain the American military commi I mean, commitment to this period without um, exaggerating the degree of threat to ourselves militarily. I agree with John on that. And that's what was the problem in the past, was when you take the military, the, the threat to us from Al-Qaeda out of this story, the American public will lose interest in this very quickly because the strategic interests at stake are very thin. Uh, and at the same time, this is not a war that we're going to win militarily. We've got to, it's going to have to be done politically. And by we need to de-emphasize what seemed to me and try to stop pretending that this is a great threat to our national security because that leads us to do things in the region 
that are over, over, have look really heavy-handed and out of sync with what both the Pakistani government and the people of Afghanistan are trying to accomplish. Whether, but, but as soon as we would pull back to that status, we'll be back in the middle 1990s again. We just won't be involved at all. We'd like to thank our panel this evening, Richard Herman, uh, Alan Payind, John Mueller, Peter Munzer. Uh, thanks to them for sharing their time this evening. Thanks to all of you for coming. And, uh,